0: chapter 3. And today we're really moving from the introduction to the book of Judges and into the stories of the Judges themselves. And so far in the introduction, we've seen a picture of Israel's hearts as they've repeatedly and increasingly abandoned the Lord and turned to the gods of the culture and the lifestyle of the Canaanites and brought upon themselves the discipline of the Lord, who hands them over to their enemies just as he said he would. But of course, we've also seen in the introduction the character of God, who despite Israel's sin has again and again, he tells us, raised up judges to save Israel. And that's what we're going to see as we move from the introduction and into the details uh, of this book. What we're expecting from the introduction is this declining cycle of Israel's sin, receiving punishment for their sin, God's salvation, but then relapse into sin. And that's the cycle we'll see as we turn to Judges 3. If you'd follow along with me, we're going to read verses 7 through 31 in Judges chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord." He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword... With two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. You have to love scripture sometimes, don't you? <laughs> and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, "I have a secret message for you, O king." And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sira. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. God, how we thank you for your word. These are your words you've given us. Would you point us towards our... King and Savior to this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, I consider myself a interested and aspiring but highly amateur and inexperienced handyman. And whether it's YouTube or one of my close friends, my typical pattern is to jump into a project and assume I can do it, only to realize I can't and quickly call a lifeline. And over the course of my very limited career of car repair and home improvement projects, the one thing I've learned is that there are hundreds of tools I had no idea existed that were created for just the situation I found myself in. But I've also discovered that in addition to these hundreds of tools, a true master handyman not only knows about all these tools that I had no idea about, he also knows all sorts of other things that can be used for the job that you'd never expect. There's shish kebab skewers and turkey basters and jar openers that can all be used for home improvement projects that I'm sure were nowhere in the minds of their inventors when they first came up with them. But in our passage this morning, what we see is God as a master craftsman the sovereign one over every heart and over all the nations, choosing just the people he wants and just the tools he wants, even when they're not expected at all to accomplish his purposes at each moment in history. We get Othniel, the courageous leader, Ehud, the cunning special op, Shamgar with his ox goad, and each saves Israel at the Lord's leading. And so what jumps out at this passage is, is a main point And that is that God creatively and sovereignly saves his people again and again. But the repetition proves that these judges fall short of the salvation we desperately need. God creatively and sovereignly saves his people again and again. But the repetition shows us that these judges fall short of the salvation we desperately need. That's what we see here. And what I want to do is look at the details of these stories... The themes of these stories and the significance of these stories. So let's let's start by looking at the details. The first judge we meet is Othniel. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll remember him from chapter 1. He's the younger brother of Caleb, and he went up and conquered the city of Debir and gained Caleb's daughter Aksa as a wife in the process. And as we read in verse 7, Othniel's leadership is again needed because the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtoreth. Of course, in Scripture, the word forgot is not a memory problem. It's not like they couldn't remember anything about him. The word forgot is a heart problem. It means that Israel is no longer giving Yahweh their attention or their focus, and certainly not their obedience, as they have abandoned him and given their attention to the word of the gods and the actions of the culture around them. And so, faithful to his word, God hands Israel over to their enemies, first into the hand of a king from the north, Cushan rishathaim from Mesopotamia. And we read that after eight years of being under the oppression of this king, Israel cried out to the Lord in their distress. Now commentators are a little split here over whether this cry to the Lord is a genuine repentance or whether it's just a complaint over their suffering and hardship. But I tend to believe this is a genuine repentance and a turning back to the Lord. And I think that for two reasons. First, note that these are the people who are described as having forgotten the Lord. But now they're described not just as complaining in general. It says they cried out to Yahweh. They are now directing their voices and their hearts back to the Lord in the face of their suffering. But secondly, I think Scripture gives us a clue itself because years later, in 1 Samuel 12, verse 10, Samuel talks about this period of the judges. And talking about particularly Barak, but also some of these other early judges, Samuel says, Israel confessed their sin and idolatry and prayed for deliverance and declared that they would again serve the Lord. So I think in these early stories, we are looking at a genuine repentance as Israel, due to the Lord's disciplining anger, is drawn back to Yahweh. They remember him and turn to him, even if only for a time. The narrator tells us then that when the people of the Lord cried out to him, he faithfully heard them and sent a deliverer sending his own spirit upon Othniel, who leads to their deliverance. And this is what we find often in the Old Testament, isn't it? That the spirit of the Lord comes upon a specific individual for a specific task to accomplish the Lord's purposes. And God is is so gracious here to send his own spirit to fill Othniel, to bring about a deliverance of his people. But of course, the story also highlights that this only is helpful for a few years. A few years later, and Israel's right back in sin, right back in idolatry, right back turning away from the Lord. And what Israel really needs is for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon them all to change their hearts so that they might walk in the ways of the Lord. And of course, the blessing of the Old Testament is that Ezekiel and Joel, among the prophets, specifically promised that one day the Lord will pour out his Spirit. On all of the people. And we're waiting for that day. Given this historical background, I think if you were alive during Jesus' day, it might not have seemed entirely unusual when the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus. The Spirit had come upon specific men before. But then Jesus begins to declare something unheard of. He not only received the Spirit, he also now has the authority to send the Spirit and give the Spirit to others. And then Jesus declares to His disciples that after He ascends to heaven, He is going to send the Spirit upon them to be with them forever, and to comfort them, and help them, and guide them in all truth, and glorify Jesus in their hearts. And that's the tremendous glory of the day of Pentecost, when Jesus fulfills our great need and His promise through the prophets to pour out the Holy Spirit on everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ so that our hearts are changed and we're equipped to serve Him, however He calls us. That's the great hope that we have in Jesus. But here in Judges 3, that's still millennia away. Here, the Spirit of the Lord enables Othniel to save Israel. And we read that the land had rest for 40 years. But then, just as chapter 2 warned us what happened, we read in verse 12 that the people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and once again the Lord responds faithfully by disciplining Israel. And as often is the case, it seems that repeat sin earns a harsher punishment, as now Israel serves Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years instead of just 8. But then once again we read that Israel cried out to the Lord, and again in his mercy the Lord raised up a deliverer, and this time, it's a Benjamite named Ehud. Now this time, we don't just get the general facts. God brought a deliverer and he saved Israel. We get all the juicy details of this story. And when we read this story, sometimes we might think, well, boy, Scripture's really giving us all the details, even some uh, potty humor here. But I think, while there's some details that are uncertain, every commentator agrees that this story is told with wit and In irony, and this story is specifically told to invite Israel to laugh out loud and rejoice in the deliverance that their God brings for them. We start verse fifteen. Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite, which itself is a bit of an irony because the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. So you've got a left-hander from the right-handed group. Now, some have suggested that Ehud may have been disabled in his right hand, and that's why he used his left hand, but we don't see anything about that in the text, so I don't think that we would go that direction. There is also some historical evidence that men trained to fight with their left hand, because given the angles with swords and shields, a left-hander would actually have an advantage in battle. And the fact is, in, in Judges 20, we find out that The tribe of Benjamin had 700 left-handed slingers. So it is possible, perhaps, that uh, there was this uh, Benjamite training program for lefty soldiers. And Ehud was was one of them. Or or it might just be that Ehud's a plain old left-handed man. It might not be any other explanation. But whatever the case, the Lord inspires him to take action when he delivers the tribute to Eglon. He takes a homemade dagger one that he has made in his own shop. It's about 18 inches long with two sharp edges. He hides it under his clothes on his right thigh so he can grab it with his left hand, and he marches off to Eglon. And after paying tribute to the the king, he turns back, but then lets the other Israelites go home and returns and says to the king, I have a secret message for you. It's at this point that I don't think we're pressing the text at all to say that there is nearly a divinely inspired gullibility that dogs the action of Eglon and his men. And what king in his right mind says, oh, this foreigner, great, he's got a secret message, I'll send all of my attendants two rooms away into the the entry hall... And not only that, but but I'll stand up and go close to him. And you just see this unfolding and you can hear the Israelites snickering like this must be God dulling their wits here. But we find that he rises from his seat and Ehud comes to deliver the message from God, which turns out to be a dagger in the stomach that kills him instantly. Now, verses 22 and 23 are a bit debated. There is at least one Hebrew word that's used only here and nowhere else in Scripture. And so the exact exit strategy of Ehud is a bit up for debate. And some of the commentators have some creative uh, descriptions of the escape. But the central question is, did Ehud close the doors from the inside and escape out a back window or the back door? or as some commentators say, through the ancient plumbing of the toilet that was apparently there. There's lots of creativity. I think a better way to see this, though, is that Ehud went through the doors, closed them from the outside, and then walked out the way he came, going right past the servants in the entry hall, perhaps thanking them and wishing them a good day, and then getting outside and sprinting for Ephraim uh, after that. And then we read that that Ehud's escape is assured because the servants, seeing the doors locked, assume that their king is using the bathroom. And again, I think the Israelites would be sniggering at the gullibility here as they wait and wait until finally they open the door and find their dead king on the floor. Ehud doesn't stop here, of course. He then sounds the trumpet, rallies Israel, and declares in absolute faith and confidence, the Lord has given your enemies into your hands and it's that faith and confidence that has marked Ehud all the way through his faith in the Lord that led him on this this mission in the first place and God's success only leads him all the more to confidently lead Israel and defeat Moab and we find that the land had rest then for 80 years the final story then is short and sweet it's one verse Shamgar leads Israel as well Or at least saves Israel. We don't even know that he led Israel. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty about Shamgar. We don't know when he showed up on the scene. He's with the Philistines as opposed to Moab or the north, so he might have been at the same time, roughly as Ehud or Barak later. We we don't know when he came. We don't know exactly who he was either. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It's not an Israelite name. In fact, son of Anat, Anat was the Canaanite goddess, And we have found arrowheads and other things from the time period with the inscription, Son of Anat, which seems to be a military marker for Canaanite soldiers. We don't even know if Shamgar was fighting on behalf of Israel or whether he just didn't like the Philistines. All we know is he had a wicked ox goad and killed 600 Philistines, and the Lord used that to save Israel from the Philistine oppression. But these are the, the details of the text and all their varied and, and colorful anecdotes. But I want to move from the details now to consider two themes that cut across these stories. Two themes. So the first theme that stands out across these stories is that the Lord is actively and sovereignly at work to bring about His purposes through His people. And I want us to notice that unlike Exodus and Joshua... There are no obvious miracles in these stories. There's no clouds by day, no pillars of fire by night, no parting of the Red Sea, no walls falling down flat. We don't have any indication that God specifically spoke to these judges and told them what to do. We are just describing everyday events in the course of history. Each day seems to dawn and set as a normal day would. Nothing here screams divine intervention. If you were an Israelite, things would have just been taking place as they normally do in history. Except that the Bible tells us over and over that every single detail came about because the Lord did it. Who handed Israel over to Cush and The Lord did. It says the Lord sold them. It says the Lord stirred up Othniel. The Lord poured out His Spirit on Othniel. The Lord strengthened Eglon to overcome Israel. The Lord raised up Ehud. And so in every detail, we're told that it's the Lord who is sovereignly and actively stirring his people. It was the Lord who raised up Ehud in Othniel. It was the Lord who inspired a cubit-long dagger and an eight-foot ox goad. Every detail is done by the hand of the Lord. And that's what we see all through history, isn't it? It's not always the case that we see divine miracles But we do see God using the people he wants to do to accomplish his purposes over and over. One year it might be a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who is God's chosen instrument to save the spies and who then gives birth to a son from whom eventually would come the Messiah. Another year it might be Cyrus, the king of Persia. He doesn't even know about the Lord Yahweh. And yet Isaiah says, he's my instrument. He's going to carry out my purposes, which will benefit my people. Another year, it might be an unheard of, unmarried girl from Nazareth who will give birth to the long-promised Messiah. A few years later, it'll be a a fisherman, a tax collector, and a zealot whom God will use to take the message of salvation around the world. It'll be an angry Pharisee turned Paul who will take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we can go on and on. All of these things, though, happen because the Lord is at work. Stirring his people to bring about his purposes. And the same is true today. God is just as much at work right now, using just the people with just the tools to bring about what he wants to happen. That's why just this week, one of our supported missionaries could share a story of answered prayer that she was an instrument of seeing a young Muslim woman put her faith in Jesus for the first time. It's why we can read from another of our supported campus pastors to say that despite the COVID restrictions, students are inviting non-Christian friends and unexpected numbers are showing up for Bible studies and discipleship in Baltimore on a college campus. It's why our new membership interviews are always so fun because I get to hear God's creativity and using all sorts of people in all different ways at all different times to bring glory to himself and bring us to him. God is just as much at work now. And of course, God is working on the individual level, which is why each one of us should be prepared to be faithful whenever God calls us to speak of Him or accomplish His purposes. But it's also true on a national level, on the geopolitical level. After all, Judges here is talking about nations and warriors and economic developments and transfers of power. Some happening in Israel, but some happening in the wider Mesopotamian world. And it's those events that the Lord uses to bring about the fulfillment of His promises and the salvation of His people. And so when we look around us, we might see weapons races or, or political maneuvering or economic or health or international policies. And these events may not seem to scream divine intervention. In fact, they might not, we might not even be able to see how God is involved. But now, just as much as then, the Lord is at work using His people to bring about His purposes using the instruments He gives for His glory. And that's the first theme we see cut across all three of these stories. And it gives us comfort and hope today as well. The second theme that cuts across these stories is the way that God uses both discipline and blessing to pull and push His children away from sin and back towards obedience. You notice how the text talks about Israel, verses 7 and 12, says that the Lord strengthened Israel's enemies and hands Israel over to them. Why in the world would the Lord do that? Well, because he's disciplining them in order to draw them back to himself. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about Leviticus chapter 26 and the Lord's promise to discipline his people if they disobeyed. If you were to go back and read the whole chapter of Leviticus 26, what you would find is that at least three times in that chapter, the Lord either directly or indirectly says that the purpose of this discipline will be to turn Israel back to himself, to bring them back to obedience, to be faithful to him. In verse 40, he declares that if Israel does confess their sins and turn back to them, he will remember his covenant with them and rescue them. That's why the Lord disciplines his people. And and do you notice what happens in Judges 3? Both times when the Lord sends an enemy and brings suffering and discipline, both times, after 8 and 18 years, Israel turns back to the Lord and cries out to the Lord in the midst of their suffering. God's discipline is effective at turning Israel from their sin and back to him. But do you notice what else the Lord does? The Lord does not just punish Israel for their sin. After delivering Israel, He also pours out blessing on them. It says that He gave rest to the land for 40 years, and then 80 years after Ehud. But what is rest? Rest is the promised blessing that Israel was looking for in the promised land. God said in this land He would give peace and rest protection and blessing to his people if they would obey him and rest upon him in other words despite their sin God then showers blessing on Israel and he doesn't just bring blessing for a week or a month or a year and say you know you better turn back to me I'm going to give you a little taste of blessing here he pours out the blessing of rest and protection for 40 years for 80 years for generations showing his people the blessing of rest in him that comes from trust and obedience. Here is this compassion and love of God as he pushes Israel and pulls Israel with discipline for sin, but blessing to woo them back to him. As I was thinking about this and reading these stories, I'll tell you the picture that came to my mind this week. It's probably not one that you would expect. The picture that came to my mind is Winnie the Pooh. If you remember the stories of Winnie the Pooh, after eating all of the honey in all of his honey pots, he's put on a little more girth than he realized. He goes to leave his house, and he gets stuck in the doorway. And Pooh has to go on a diet for several days because of his lack of self-control. But after those few days, what do his friends do? Well, they gather on both sides of him, and one set of friends is pushing Pooh from the inside, and the other is pulling Pooh with all their strength from the outside, until after pushing and pulling, finally, pop, he escapes the, the confines of the entrance to his home and is set free. What I see in this passage is God in all of His grace and His mercy. He's pushing Israel and pulling Israel. He's disciplining them for their sin, but pouring out blessing upon them for obedience. He's hedging the path of their sin with thorns and discipline, but then He's wooing His humbled people to Himself with good and rest and peace and blessing. So that whether it's discipline for sin or whether it's blessing for obedience, there's this twofold sovereign work of God to draw His people to Himself and to secure their hearts as His. And this is how the Lord works in our lives too, isn't it? At times He pours out blessing on us, showing us His goodness and drawing us to Him and, and the beauty of what He does. Then He also gives us difficulty Sometimes it's discipline for sin. Other times it's just fellowship with the sufferings of Christ in this life. But either way, they draw us into deeper dependence upon Him as He he secures our hearts and draws us to Himself. That's the Lord's work across these stories. So we have these two themes, the Lord's sovereign activity behind every event to accomplish His purposes, and the Lord's double work of discipline and blessing to draw His people to Himself. But as we come to an end now, let's finally notice the significance of these stories. And if we're going to notice the significance of these stories, we have to make sure we're interpreting these stories correctly. And in order to interpret these stories correctly, we have to know where to put ourselves in these stories. See, sometimes when we read the book of Judges, we begin to ask, how should we be like Othniel? Or how should we be like Ehud? Ehud? Or how should we be like Shamgar? And for all of you kids, I hope it's not wielding eight-foot ox goads around the house. But the reality is, we shouldn't be putting ourselves in the position of the deliverer at all. We're not the deliverer. We're the members of God's people. We're the sinners who need to be saved. And don't you and I see on a weekly basis how closely sin clings to us and how much we need a deliverer we're the ones who are crying out to the lord for deliverance under the weight of our own sin and our suffering so the question isn't how should we be like the hero the question is we are sinners in need of salvation so how do Othniel, ehud and shamgar help us in our sin and when we ask that question i think we quickly have to say well they don't do much to help us in our sin Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar are not what we need. They rescued Israel for 40 years or on a good day 80 years, but in the scheme of history, that's just a blip on the radar. Before sin and evil and idolatry land Israel right back under the anger of the Lord, and our hearts have the same bent. See, these judges are kind of like Marvel superheroes. I don't know what your favorite superhero is. Maybe it's iron man or black panther or spider-man or captain america captain america is the best just in case you're wondering but they all have one thing in common every marvel superhero saves the day but the bad guys just keep coming back sin continues to flourish and so in judges just like in the marvel cinematic universe there's always another sequel there's always another movie because the victory is never enough. Which leaves us longing for the day when an adequate Savior might show up who won't just save the land for a few years here and there, but who could deal definitively with sin and cleanse it and put it away once and for all and restore us and confirm us in obedience to God in an undiminished covenant relationship with Him. Because of the nature of our sin, that is the kind of salvation we need, but the kind of salvation that can only come when the Son of God Himself would show up. But that is precisely who Jesus is. And that's precisely what Jesus came to offer. He came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and to break the power of sin. He came to unite our hearts to Him and to secure us for all eternity. He is the one who ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit of God on us to change us and make us more and more like Him. And it's true, the final battle hasn't happened yet. But the judge and the Savior that we really need has arrived. And He invites us to come under His banner and to put our trust in Him and to follow Him and to obey Him and to put our whole hearts and souls and minds and strength And faith upon him. That we might dwell with him forever. Because if we put our faith in him. The day is coming. When there will not need to be any more sequels. When we will not need to be saved from sin or anything else ever again. And So that's the significance of a chapter that shows us judge after judge after judge. It points us ahead to the savior we really need. Who happens to be the savior that God has really sent if we will put our faith and our trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your compassion and your mercy and your grace that would save Israel from their sins again and again. And we look at our own hearts and we see the same pull to idolatry and to sin and to selfishness and away from you. And so we know that we don't need another judge who will do this or that, but we'll always need another sequel. We need one Savior who will save us definitively once and for all, who will take our sins upon Himself and rise again to give us life and ascend to heaven to give us His Spirit to make us like Him, to unite us to Him, that we might be with Him forever. How we thank You for Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania.